Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Uncommon Comedy Podcast. I am your host, Brian April. All episodes are available on Apple uh, Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And you can also find us on uh, Facebook as well. Uh, so if you want, feel free to subscribe to the channel. Uh, follow us on Facebook at Uncommon Comedy, on Instagram at Uncommon Comedy Tour, and on YouTube at Uncommon Comedy Podcast. Say that five times fast. All right. Uh, we're going to get into it today. Uh, our, our guest today is a very, very funny uh, comedian. Had a pleasure of knowing him for many years now, uh, getting close to 20 years. Uh, we've done a ton of shows together as a comedian. You've seen him on Drybar. You've seen him all over the internet. He has a, a very, very uh, popular piece that we'll probably talk about called Three Little Pigs. Um, and <laughs> he's rolling his eyes in the background. I can see him already. Uh, we'll talk about a bunch of different things with him, but he performs all over the country, uh, all over the world, actually. And he's very, very funny. Please welcome a comedian and writer, John Brennan. You know, Brian, April, mm -hmm. uh, the people who are just listening to this on the podcast are not actually seeing the intro video that goes along with that music. That's true. And that's a shame. You need to plug, you need to plug your kicking video <laughs> because all the people that are listening on the podcast can't see it. And you need to mention that. Yes, it is a it is a kicking video, and you can see it uh, if you watch the podcast on YouTube. Yeah. I can't. I, that would be kind of odd to just describe it. Okay, here's a definition of uncommon and a dictionary, and let's do it. Let's do it for the audio podcast. Let's do a verbal <laughs> recreation of your video. <laughs> that would see, be see what we're made of. <laughs> Look at all the subscribers go away, mm. and. <laughs> That would be kind of funny, actually. That's, I'm certainly not opposed to that, truthfully. I uh, well, welcome, John. Pleasure to have you. Um, now, what I what I love about John, and I and I'll even say it to you since you're here. Uh, what, I, what I love about you might you as is, well, yeah, yeah, is um, you, your act is um, the fact that you're so considerate and that you mute your cell phone, which is is something I really love about you. Got it. That, that is one of the best things about you. Mm -hmm. um, no, what I really love about you is is your act is very smart. It's very clever. Um, you have great moments of, of high energy, you know, physicality on stage. And I always find myself watching you go, ah, oh, I wish I wrote that. I, I think that's like one of the best compliments you can give somebody. It's like, ah, oh, I think I wish I wrote that because it's just so good. So, uh, you know. Shucks. Yeah. Shucks, Brian. Thank Glad you. Glad to have you on the show. So, uh, yeah, we we go back a little bit of a ways. We had some some more stories and things of that nature, but uh, uh, let's enough about that for now. Um, who inspired you to get into comedy? Uh, I have always been fascinated by, by comedy and, uh, and making people laugh and people that are funny people from the time I was really little. So my earliest memories are, are being drawn to people who were funny people in my family Um when I was young, I would watch uh, watch stand up on television. You know, if I was changing channels or whatever, and I would come across stand up, I would watch it. Um, I didn't understand all of it because I was a kid, but I knew that there were that there was laughter, and I was drawn to it. And I had uh, the the earliest memories that I can have of of being a performing stand up is my mom had a bridge club when I was a kid met once every, you know, three or four months, they would, they moved to different people's houses and they played bridge. It's a girl thing. It's a thing that older women do. 
it's a card game. Uh, so I would have, I would be relegated up to my room when mom hosted bridge night. And so I would get my PJs on and I would go to bed and I would hear the ladies all downstairs and they were uh, getting playing cards and having their snacks and drinking coffee and all the stuff that women do when they play bridge. And then my mom would come up and she would say, Hey John, come downstairs. And so I would come downstairs and I would stand in the middle of all of those uh, card tables where the women were playing. And mom would say, tell that joke that you told us this afternoon. And so mom would have me come down and do and tell jokes to the ladies in her bridge club. Wow. Um, well, and I didn't know that that was unusual. I thought that that's just what happened. You know, when mom had bridge over, then then the boys would come and tell. I thought that was part of normal life. And it wasn't until I looked back at it and went, yeah, that's a little unusual that that you have a you have comedy chops at age six. Um, but I it's but a little unusual that your, your mom is running a, a an illegal casino in your house, too. It wasn't illegal. <laughs> It wasn't illegal. All of the all of the proceeds went to a good cause, and <laughs> the John Fund, which is always a good cause. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at six years old, you were you're out there working it, and that well, did you did you have any like um, did you see stand up comedians later like uh, you know Bill Cosby or you know the Smothers Brothers or any did you see anything like that that kind of made you like get a little more into it. Yeah, I, I watched. I never, I never intended to do it, so I it didn't grow up with the idea I'm going to be a comic someday. I never, never had that idea. But I, I watched the Smothers Brothers certainly. Uh, Flip Wilson. I listened to Steve Martin. Bill Cosby was an influence, um, and then a little later on, uh, uh, Jonathan Winters, uh, Robin Williams. Uh, and again, not necessarily stand up, but just funny people. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and I paid attention to the way that they communicated. And I wasn't I don't mean to imply that I was studying them, but I would that I was influenced by them when it came time for me to do things in school. My the the. Uh, book report that I did in seventh grade was a project. Uh, I was supposed to report on Harry Houdini's uh, biography. I read Harry Houdini's biography. I had to do a book report. And we decided, our group decided that we were going to tell, uh, tell the story of Harry Houdini's biology or biography while we were performing a magic trick. And so I invented this character who was like this really clumsy magician. And my act was that I would go and do do magic tricks, but they didn't work. Like I tried to bake a cake in a hat and I was breaking eggs and putting flour in the, in the class. You got to remember, Brian, this is seventh grade. Okay. So don't be too judgmental. <laughs> um, I wouldn't try to do this act now in front of a <laughs> comedy club audience. Uh, but at the time, it was killer. I mean, none of the none of the other people in the class uh, had a had a comedy aspect to their book reports, and uh, and so I that was the, a moment for me when I went, holy cow! Uh, this I am I didn't 
know the term killing at the time, but I was like, I'm really doing well. I mean, this entire class is laughing. The teacher is falling out of her chair and I'm, and I'm doing this on purpose. And that was the mm. thought that I had. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this intentionally and it's working. Uh, and that was in seventh grade. And so after that, I sort of geared all of my presentations towards the aspect of trying to make people laugh. Again, I wasn't doing it as a professional comedian. I just really liked the power of being able to command attention by by being funny. Hmm. Did the teacher give you the stretch sign you were doing so well? She's like, no, no that's not saying. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it was very primitive. Uh, it was very primitive comedy, but for... Uh, for the for the time and for my age it was a formulative moment for me when i I, just you were hooked at that yeah it there's there's something there's something magical about about being able to bring bring laughter to people Mm -hmm. being and and to do it on purpose that was the thing that was so satisfying for me was that i actually i wrote that material in seventh grade i conceived of what it would what I would do, what I would say, how I would deliver this. And I thought this will make them laugh. Mm. Um, and it worked and it was, uh, it was magical. So now, I, I think it was Steve Martin's autobiography where he was talking about kind of the same thing where he would just be funny in class. And then all of a sudden he got that reputation. And so people started expecting him to be funny in everything that he did. And it put this, this pressure on him. Did you find the same thing? Um, I guess I didn't, I I didn't think of it as pressure, but there were definitely moments when I would be on my way up to do a speech or, or leaving my desk to go up to the front of the class. And I would hear somebody say, Oh, John's going up. We got to, I can't wait to see what this is. So there was all, there was an anticipation because Mm. I sort of had a reputation of, of always doing goofy things or funny things. Right. Yeah. And then you just got their names, put them on an email list, sold them a couple of drinks while they did it. So yep. It was, and it was eventually good. and told them I I, I started Follow you on Twitter. <laughs> right. I closed every speech with don't forget to tip your wait staff. Um, yeah. Try the try the pizza triangles. Yeah, try the I'll, pizza. Try I'll the, be here all year. The wings. Yeah, I'll be here. Hopefully I'll be here all year. Yeah. Um so you go through school and all that. So do you remember your first uh, show for, you know, not in school, your first quote unquote stand up show that you did? Yes. <laughs> uh, it was a open mic in Indianapolis and I did, I had two minutes. Um, I had absolutely no idea how to do stand up. Um, I literally called the club and said, I think, that I'm funny. How do I get on stage? And they told me you have to have a, uh, you have to get on the waiting list. So I got on the waiting list. It took uh, three weeks to get up on stage. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they put me up on stage. I had two minutes and I was terrible, but it, but it got laughs again. And I, I fully expected to bomb. I had no intention of doing this beyond that first night. I just wanted to get up and do it to say that I did it. So sort of conquer that fear. And I got up, did it. 
and afterwards the the guy who was running the open mic the regular you know the seasoned mm-hmm. veteran he said that was your first time and i say yeah that was first time he goes that was really good you should come back and do this again and that was all it took you know wow. <laughs> he said yeah you got promise you should come back again and so i did i came back again and, and then i i fell into the open mic scene you know, and you start to have your comedy buddies and you all bring your notebooks in and you make, you know, you try your new bits and you punch each other's stuff up. And I just, I loved it. I loved everything about the working on material and trying out material and, uh, and honing it. Um, first time I, first time I ever did stand up, I didn't know that you were supposed to use the same material week after week after week. And so I would go in with a brand new, you know, three minutes every time, every time. Yeah. And uh, and one of the guys had to pull me aside. He goes, what are you doing? And I said, I what? I'm just doing my material. He goes, that's not the same as what you did last week. And I was like, right. I thought you're supposed to write new material. I'm like, no, you're a moron. You have to, <laughs> you have to but, work on it. But that's really common. I mean, that's really common that people think mm-hmm. you have to. Uh, oh, I did that already. So you right. know, I'm retiring that. Like you, you did it once. <laughs> you know, you got to build the act and you tighten it and the. You right. Know, we don't that. know. Right. You, you know, you're watching other people do it and you have no way of knowing. You, you just think, oh, that guy's funny. Right. You don't know that he's told those jokes a hundred times before. You just, right. People think you just get up there and wing it. Right. That's and, it's, yeah. and it's also, you know, we started, <clears throat> you've been doing it, uh, I think, a little bit longer than I have. I've been doing it 22, almost 23 years. 1990 was my okay. first open mic. So you've been doing a lot. Well, yeah. So I, I was 97. So you've been doing it seven years longer. Um, and so it's not like there was a ton of internet or how to's or anything like that. You just went up and just was like, does this work? <laughs> so right. yeah. And it's not until someone says, Hey, no, you got to develop that. And right. It, it's so different now. It's, it's, it's a, a really interesting uh, to see the evolution of comedy and how much information's out there now. And there's all these courses and classes and videos and uh, podcasts and right. all that sort of stuff. So um, how long did it take for things? How often were you getting up and like, how long did it take for things to click for you? Do you were like consistently, <clears throat> you know, you weren't having those up and down sets. Right. Uh, I was fortunate enough that I had uh we, there were two clubs in Indianapolis that were owned by a couple, a, a married couple, and they they just loved comedy. They loved everything, everything about it. They they were actually present uh, at the open mics, and they would come in and they would watch and things like that. And that's and I again I thought that's the way it was all over the world. I thought mm. that that's just what happened in comedy clubs, and it wasn't until later on that I realized that they were unusual in that. And so I had, uh, I, I was a faithful open micer. I, every opportunity I had to do open mic, I would get up and do it. And so I was getting up uh, probably not often. It was, I, I don't live in, it's not San Diego or Chicago or New York in Indianapolis. I mean, there's a scene, but, but back in the 90s, it wasn't. You couldn't get up every night. There just weren't there weren't rooms. Right. Um, and so I so I would get up about twice a month, probably, um, and do five minutes. And uh, I did that for a couple of years. 
because I had a day job. And again, I still wasn't thinking about becoming a comic. I was, it was just a hobby. And uh, one night I got up and I did my set and I was honestly, I was at a point where I was saying, okay, I've got to make a choice. And this comedy thing, it, while it's fun, it's not worth the time and energy that I'm investing in it for what I'm getting back. Mm -hmm. And so I had, I was at a point where I was literally going to, it was going to be my last open mic. Yeah. Um, and the club owner came up afterwards and he said, okay, we're going to give you a week. I said, what? He goes, we're going to give you a week of, you know, to MC. Um, and uh, I was like, oh, okay. And so that was, they gave me a week to MC and I, um, I'm a, I was a decent MC, um, in that I didn't have, I understood what the MC's job was supposed to be. And it wasn't my job to go and kill the audience. And it wasn't my job. It was my job to facilitate the show and make everybody welcome. So I didn't have a gigantic ego as an MC. I was pretty terrified. Um, and I worked, uh, at as an MC for another couple of years, steady, and that was when it really took off because the the owner, the uh, Patty Perrin, um, booked the MCs for both clubs in mm -hmm. Indianapolis, and I was I always had at least a week, sometimes two weeks, and at that time it was Tuesday through Saturday, so there were nine shows in a week, um, and. I would, so I'm up night after night after night for nine shows, one after the other. And you know that when you yep. get that kind of stage time, you just, you develop really fast. Because mm -hmm. especially on the weekends, Friday and Saturday, there were five shows on Friday and Saturday. And so you can make, you can make a change in this show and try it at the next show. And then you got another show after that. It's right. the late show, you know, <laughs> which, <laughs> which it's, it doesn't matter how you do. Yeah but it's still a rep. And right. so, um, so that was when it took off. Once, once I started working regularly for the club, I got a lot of stage time and, um, and then I, I started being, um, deliberate about my material. I taped every show I listened to it and I was objective enough to go, yeah, that's not working the way it's supposed to work. I didn't, I didn't listen to my tapes and go, man, I'm awesome. I kill every time I get on stage. I was much more uh, accurate um, than a lot of the comics that I've run into um, sometimes since then. Um, well, that's a really important um, thing too. It's to be realistic. I always say, don't be delusional for, for both good and bad. Like you said, don't say I killed every time. And then if you don't do well, Oh, that audience was terrible. Right. No, no, it's your job to make them laugh. You, you know, you were, I mean, unless they were playing volleyball or something, you know, if they're, if it's at a club and they're expecting to see comedy and you go up and you don't deliver, that's on you. Right. I mean, there are exceptions, you know, they've been there four hours for some corporate thing, you know, like there, there are always exceptions, but I would say 90, nine percent of the time 98 percent of the time whatever it's it's on you right it's, it's not the crowd's fault so uh, there, right. there, there are times you're like they're just dead and there's nothing i can do but <laughs> but it's nice though that you actually had um club owners who who cared enough to to like help groom you did they give you advice on like we like this we like that 
Nope. Okay. See, because when I started uh, in Boston, there was a club called the Comedy Connection, which was the the A room, and they would have national headliners in, and their open mics. The the manager of the club would sit in the audience during open mic, and he would take notes, and then after every show, if you wanted to, he would give you notes and feedback about your set. And so he said, okay, you know, I like this. I don't like this. This is the type of comedy we like here. Um, if you want to work on this, 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 and leave out this, 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 we'd love to have you come back, you know, call me next week. If not, see you. We'll see you yeah. in six months or whatever. Have a great so, like, life. Yeah. And so then they would groom you and then it'd be like, okay, now you'll get a guest spot on like a Tuesday night. And then it was, right. you know, you work your way up. And so they would, they would help groom you to be the comic that they wanted for their club, which was a really nice thing. So to, to get that feedback from somebody, because otherwise you're just spinning your wheels, kind of going, I don't know what's working or yeah. where to go. Well, they had a, um, they they had two really. They were both considered A rooms, mm-hmm. and the the Indianapolis clubs were rooms that people would come to. The headliners would come back to even after they had already made the break, you know, to television and movies. You would get guys like. Like Brad Garrett would still come back and do Indianapolis mm. even after he was on Everybody Loves Raymond, um, and so that was they had that reputation. They were they were really good clubs, and they didn't they didn't tell me what to do or what not to do. It was all gauged strictly on what happened with the audience. You know, if you if the audience was happy, then you were then you were doing your job. Right. The only stipulation they had for the uh, for the openers was you had to be clean and you shouldn't you shouldn't talk to the audience. You know, you don't. It's it's okay to ask about birthdays and things like that, but you're not you're not going to be the guy who goes into the audience and mm-hmm. you know and chats them up about where they're from and what do they li- do for a living and all of that. Um, and but that was it. Everything else was was just. Uh, you know, based on your performance. Yeah, your performance. And for people who, who don't know, um, an A room is just basically it's the highest. Uh, it's That's how they label uh, the, the quality of the room and like the talent level. So A is obviously the highest. You have A, B, and C rooms usually. Uh, a C room would be what a bar. A you know, Stuckey's, a bowling yeah, alley. Yeah, yeah, bowling alley or something like that. Uh, B room would be like, you know, a restaurant, um, you know, the back room of a restaurant or whatever. And A room would be like an actual established high level club where national acts come through, you know, the Jay Leno's, the Ray Romano's, the Brad Garrett's, that sort of stuff. Right. Um, just for people listening, because um, we like to inform here. Yeah. Uh, so, so, what is the best piece of advice you ever received about comedy? Oh, uh, that's easy. Um, Tom Naughton. Do you know Tom Naughton? Not by name. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, was going through, he was middling in Indianapolis. So and that's, the second, that's the second spot in a, a show. Yeah, so have open, yeah, open, middle, and a headliner. Right. I was opening. And he came up to me in between or, or after a show. Um, middle of the week, I think. And he said, can I, can I give you a piece of advice? He asked. And I was green enough that I didn't know why he was asking. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I didn't realize that comics have this, 
have this code that it's it's improper to go and tell another comic to presume to tell another comic something that might help his act. Uh, I didn't realize that that was taboo, uh, but he did. And he came up and said, "Can I tell you something?" And I said, "Absolutely." And he said, "You talk too much." He said, "You're." your premises are good and your jokes are solid, but you're not getting the laughs that you could give because you just talk too much. You, you have way too many words. And I had, uh, I, I didn't know much about standup. I was a writer and writing is not the same as standup. Standup is spoken and writing is, you know, is written. And so I gave a lot more detail than I needed to. Mm-hmm for my talking. And so he took me back in the green room and he said, uh, we're going to, you know, let me hear your first joke. And I told him the joke and he wrote it all out and he just took a pencil and goes, Oh, we don't need this. We don't need this. This word can be that. And we just, and we just rewrote, you know, everything. Um, and it was the, easily the best piece of advice I've ever received because, wow. because it's right. And I yeah. have, I have thought of him often when I'm putting bits together uh, I've thought about Tom in my ear saying, yeah, don't talk too much. <laughs> Just, um, and once I, once I sort of retooled my brain to the, uh, to the idea of as few words as possible. Um, the, the ideal number of words is zero. If you can get to the point where, where you're making people laugh because they are so in tune with what's going on and where you're going, they, all you have to do is just kind of, you know, just kind of look at them and, mm-hmm. and they bust up, then that's the goal. The goal is to get to zero words. Um, yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good goal. And so many people forget about physicality and uh, act outs and all of that. And it's, it's a, a great tool because you can use it to extend or like I said, you can just do it just a look that can then get you a laugh, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, so yep. what, what, uh, what is your writing process? Because you, I, I would say you are a very prolific writer. You, you, you write constantly. You have all these great ideas, and you come up with such amazing uh, joke. Like the, the flipping joke is just. Uh, you'll have to look uh, on YouTube or on uh, John Brannion's got a dry bar comedy special out. Actually, drybarcomedy.com. Mm, does and uh, it's John Brannion, B R A Y. Uh, wait. B-R-A-N-Y-A-N, sorry. My brain doesn't work good. <laughs> so uh, so John Brannion, uh, B-R-A-N-Y-A-N. And uh, you'll see his flipping joke uh, in there. But like you just see all sorts of jokes like that. So what what is kind of your writing process? Uh, the most important thing I do is I still hang around funny people. I'm still drawn to funny people. And... I'm just a student of anybody who is making other people laugh. I pay attention to everything. I pay attention to what they say. I pay attention to the way they hold their head. I pay attention to what they do with their hands. Um, I just, I watch all of it. And the, uh, the other thing that I do is I keep a notebook. Um, I use Evernote and because humor for me doesn't always show up in any sort of completed form. A lot of times it's fragmented ideas or it's a thought about something that somebody said or something I overheard. 
it's a sign that I saw. It's just a fragment of an idea. And so I write it down um, or I record it with a voice recorder. And those two things are, uh, are invaluable because I don't have writer's block anymore um, because I don't ever sit down and look at a blank sheet of paper or a blank computer screen and go, okay, what's funny? Because I've been paying attention mm-hmm. and I've got a, I've got a notebook. So I already, I already have some ideas that are funny. Now it's just a, a matter of pulling those things out and starting to process them. Um, and so the process is, uh, is fairly simple. That is, it, it occurred to me a few a few years ago, I would get the question, and you probably get this question too, Brian. People will ask you, how do you think of your material? Mm-hmm. They may ask you that. How do you think mm-hmm. up your jokes? How do you think up your jokes? And my pat answer was, I don't know. They just come to me. But I started thinking about that a while back, and I said, you know, I really should have some idea of how this happens right i mean we should i should be able to i should be able to at least for my own sake i should be able to kind of put this in some sort of a form because i'd like to be able to do it on command Mm -hmm. i'd like to not have to wait for inspiration but sort of force it to happen and so i started paying attention to what was happening inside my brain when i was when i was being funny and what occurred to me is that humor uh, humor can only happen when there's two ideas. The, the big revelation for me is that comedy is not about trying to think up a funny idea. It's about finding two ideas. Uh, and any two ideas have the potential to be funny. It just depends on how they're connected. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you've got two ideas you have the potential for humor. If you have one idea, that's not enough. You can't be funny with just one single idea. And the illustration that I have for that is uh, there's a company called Honest and they make various baby products, um, the Honest Company. And my daughter sent me a picture years ago that was a picture of Honest diapers. So Honest diapers. And she said, underneath the picture, if these diapers could talk, the things they would say. And that is, that's how comedy works. You take the concept of honesty, which is not funny by itself. Right. And you take the concepts of diapers, which are not funny by themselves. But you apply honest and diapers and you put them together in the same. And now we have the possibility of comedy. Mm hmm because you start asking questions about that and, and comedy, that's the second revelation is that comedy is always the answer to a question. Um, and if you, if you listen to Jim Gaffigan, you can listen to any comic, but Jim Gaffigan is the one that is the most obvious to, to pay attention because he'll actually ask some of the questions and then respond to them. If you listen to Gaffigan's set, right. Uh, you know, he'll go, what's it, what would it be like to order a, what would it be like to order a hot pocket at a restaurant? There's the question. And then he proceeds to answer that question. Right. That's that's all comedy is. It's finding two ideas that are and putting them together and then asking questions about them. Well, what if this, what if, what if these diapers could talk, what would they say? Who would wear honest diapers? 
How would you know? What would a dishonest diaper be like? What if politicians wore these diapers? What if the person in the witness stand had to slip on an honest diaper rather than putting his hand on the Bible? And you just ask those questions and respond to those questions. Uh, and that's comedy. Everything you, you mentioned the flip in Arkansas uh, bit. That whole bit was the result of a conversation that I had with a guy that I was playing cards with over at my house. And his wife came over and uh, we're playing cards. His name's Jason. He's a funny person. And he shows me this thing on his phone and it's a picture of the flipping Church of Christ. He goes, look at this. And it's just a flipping Church of Christ. And, and we both thought that was super funny. I said, that's gotta be a real place. And so we looked it up and by golly, it is, it's a real place. And then the questions just started to go, you know, what would you call the burger joint? What would the library be called? What about the police department? Somebody call the flipping cops. Um, right. That whole bit was the result of just a, a barrage of questions and musings that we got from, uh, you know, the idea of flipping, which is not an adjective in this case. Right. And, and Arkansas, which is a, a location, a city, it's a city. And so that's, and those are the two ideas, the idea of, of flipping somebody off, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a location. And so those two ideas, that's comedy people. Uh, I love it. Anyone can do it. <laughs> no, it's well, so good though. When you say it like that, it, it makes it sound really simple. Um, and the concepts are simple. Uh, mm -hmm. Like that concept is simple, but coming through that and then all the other aspects of it, of phrasing and, you know, uh, timing and emphasis and um, word choice and, you know, and then where else can you take it? And again, you should definitely, if you haven't, if you don't know the bit we're talking about, go on to drybarcomedy.com, John Branion, and watch that special. Uh, I'm so mad that you did that joke and found that joke and I, I that I didn't. It just makes me angry at you. So. There's there's so much comedy out there in the universe, Brian. <laughs> oh, I know, but plenty for all of us. No, I want that. <laughs> it's just what I was going for all oh, of us. Oh, it's so good. Uh, but uh, no, that's a really good explanation <laughs> of the writing process because that's what it boils down to. I mean, there's always, you know, there's there's the different elements of psychology in there. Um, whether it's uh, embarrassment, um, recognition, um, superiority, you know, all of these, these other aspects that you can do and you can, you know, we can get really technical into it and try to tie them all in. And the more elements of those that you hit, you know, the more people will, uh, the bigger, hopefully the laugh should be, but the, the basis right. idea of that is just having those two different ideas or those two different uh, entities and bringing them together. I think that's really brilliant. It's a, well, it's a really simple way for to to recognize that right the any two ideas have the potential for comedy any two ideas have the potential for comedy it just depends on how they're connected and and then to go along with the point that you were making you talk about embarrassment or uh or, or point of view is how i refer to it in the book okay. um that you have there's passion that drives your comedy and so how you decide which of these uh, which of these ideas you're going to use is determined by how much passion you have for the two ideas that you've put together. And so literally when I start writing, when I decide to get serious and write a bit, 
I will generate pages and pages of ideas on a topic. Um, and it just happens. It happens automatically because I'm just combining ideas. And mm. once you start, once you start slamming ideas together, you know, you can put dozens and dozens of them together very quickly. Um, and then you go through and scan and a couple of pairs will kind of jump out at you as being, Oh, that's an interesting idea. It'll just speak to you. Um, mm. And then those are the ones that you start asking questions about, well, what if this, and what if that, and who would use this? And when would you use that? And when would be an inappropriate time to do that? And, and you answer all of those questions. Right. Who, where, when, why, and yeah. But, but it's based on a feeling that you have. It's based mm -hmm. on it's outrage or sadness or embarrassment is a big one or, uh, or happiness. I mean, the, the, the passion that you have for those, for those topics is what that's what drives comedy it's right. not it's not jokes comedy rides a wave of emotion um and so if you have if you have passion underneath your material some of the dumbest lamest most insignificant things can become brilliant pieces of comedy because it's it's driven by the passion right not the, not the material not the not the intellect it's it's emotion. Right. And it comes through you and people can feel that. Right. That's why I always say, write what you're passionate about. And the other reason for that too, is you, you won't get sick of saying it, you know, because right. as comedians, we, I, I mean, I've been saying certain jokes for 17 years, but I'm still just as passionate about it. I mean, I probably should update it, but uh, you know, I, I've twisted it for, for various reasons because it's, it's come around in full circle. I used to do a Pictionary joke or I still do a Pictionary joke. And uh, the punchline that I had was, you know, I always get uh, the premise was I always get the worst um, answers to draw. And so I went through this whole thing and I ended up coming up with viral meningitis. And I, you know, and it just this, it was a very passionate thing because I was always frustrated by these things. And I just had that joke for a while and then I was going to retire it. And then I got sick and I got viral meningitis, uh, <laughs> which is hysterical to me. Um, so I, I laughed at the, when the doctor told me that I, I literally laughed in her face like a Batman villain. Like it was, and so I do that. I still do that joke now, but only because I spent like three months trying to find the punchline that would work. And viral meningitis was the punchline that worked for all my criteria. I didn't want to, didn't want to be something that was super common that would make people feel bad, like cancer or, you know, any, anything else. Right. Um, and so it had to be, I, I didn't want to go bubonic plague because I wanted to be realistic, but you know, all these, so all these things that we, we go through right. to, to craft a joke. And then I said, it, I said, it, I said it, and then all of a sudden, boom, I get it. And I just laugh. So now I just say that. And then that leads me into my next bit about now that I know that my jokes come true, I'm going to do material about winning the lottery, you know? So yeah. it's, so now yeah. I've taken it and I just use that whole bit to set up. And, you know, again, it's, it's, it's an old bit, but it's, I, I like it because it makes me laugh of the whole process that I go through. And it's, it's for me. And it's something like I said that you're passionate about. And, right. Uh, and I think when you're passionate about certain topics, uh, like I so said, we, we go over, I mean, gosh, how many, how many times do you say a joke in, in a year? I mean, thousands? this year, <laughs> well, not this year, like year. three. Yeah. <laughs> On an average year, but <clears throat> and then you multiply that by, you know, three, four, five years or however long you keep that in your rotation and you better be passionate about it or else you're going to start to mail it in and people right. aren't going to laugh at it anymore. And they're going to know because they can they can see that. So they absolutely can. That's the 
the phenomenon that I have noticed with a lot of uh, younger comics, and by that I mean comics who haven't been doing comedy very long, not necessarily that they're <laughs> chronologically young, um, but that, that people who are doing material versus people who are communicating truth about themselves is obvious. But to, to, to those of us who know what to look for, mm -hmm. um, but because you know, you've run open mics. Mm -hmm. um, there, are, there are people who, who get up and they do their material and it gets nothing. And then there are people who get up and they also do material and they're both relatively new comics. But the, that the guy who does material that you can tell is genuinely things that he's interested in and passionate about and they're true about his life right. or her life. Um, they always do better with the, with the audience. They always do better. And it's because I, I tried to describe it to one of these guys, these hapless souls <laughs> who was doing comedy. He got nothing. It was just six minutes of crickets in the room. And he comes back afterwards and he, and he looks at me and he goes, well, what'd you think? And I, I, I was sad. It's like, you can't hear, you can't hear nothing. You can't hear the, the crickets. But I said, the problem is that you are delivering material and we can tell that you're delivering material. Nobody came in here to hear you tell jokes. That's a misconception that comics have. That the audience wants to hear my jokes. They don't. The audience does not want you to deliver material to them. The instant that the audience knows that you are going through material, they check out. Um, they don't do it on purpose. It's just what happens because they realize that you are reciting lines. You are, you are reciting lines. Yep. Um, and that what makes a great actor in a movie is you don't realize that they're reading a script. They all are. They're all reading scripts. <laughs> but you don't. But but they don't deliver it in such a way that you're like, well, obviously they're reading from a script. But comics do it all the time. Comics get up and march through their material uh, and let the entire audience know, hey, I've told these jokes many times before, huh? And every and all their their mannerisms are not natural. Their their voice inflection is not natural. Every everything about what they're doing is false. And even if the material is good, even if it's clever, funny material, it's not going to work because right. it's not genuine. Right. And people can see right through that. And right. yeah, it's, it's so important to, to be yourself. And there are times you, you, you hear premises and you're like, oh, and you just, it just draws the audience right in. And even if it's not, uh, again, even if it's not like knocked down hysterically funny, you draw them in and that's really important. If you can get that with, with just what you're saying, once you start adding in the punchlines, like you're, you're golden. Yeah. Um, well, I've asked people if they think it, I've, I, they've asked me, uh, you know, why didn't this work? Why didn't that, why wasn't, didn't that work? And I've asked them, do you think it's funny? And a lot of times that throws them. Yeah. Do you think it's funny? Right. And they're, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I go, you don't, do you? You don't think it's funny. You told that joke because you thought the audience would think it's funny. Um, and that is never a good reason to tell a joke. <laughs> That is, uh, that's insulting to people. Right. 
and they can tell. If you don't think it's funny, then don't say it. But if you think it's funny, go for it. Right. You have to be authentic and, you know, you, you want to display your sense of humor. And again, not what, what they want to hear. And that's that's so, so important. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Uh, what comedian makes you laugh? Besides oh, me, of course. You know. Besides Brian April, nobody. <laughs> I have a, I have a, I've become an easy laugher. I didn't used to be, but I've become an easy laugher. Uh, John Mulaney makes me laugh. Jim Gaffigan makes me laugh. Brian Regan makes me laugh. Uh, Bill Burr makes me laugh. Uh, uh, Jake Johansson mm-hmm. makes me laugh. Um, there's there's a lot of them. Uh, I think that uh, I think Chris Rock is funny. Uh, I think uh, Bill Cosby still is funny. I mean, it's a shame. It's a shame that all of the stuff that has happened in his life has tarnished uh, his legacy. But he's always funny. Right. You can always, if you didn't know anything about what has happened to Bill Cosby and you just went back and watched it ignorant of his, you would laugh. Right. You know, there's no question that it's funny. Um, I think that, uh, Gosh, there's 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 so many. There's a lot. Um, What's well, some good ones? <clears throat> yeah, John Mulaney's one that uh, not a lot of people know. I, although he's starting to really get up there now, and people are starting to know him a lot more. Um, uh, Nate Nate Bargatze. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, he's got a Nate fascinates me. I just think that his, you know, he, he just gets up there and talks. Nate's Nate's a guy who, if you want to know. If you want a lesson on how to just get up and, and be who you are on stage, I think Nate Bargatze is a pretty good guy to look at for that. Because mm. I, I imagine, I, I don't know him really well. I've hung around with him a little bit. Uh, but I think that he is, that he that's who he is um, on stage. Nice. Um, so now I get to come to my favorite question. Also, Gary you- Goldman. Okay, go ahead. Oh, you like Gary Goldman? Gar- I Gosh, it's it's interesting to see Gary like blowing up um, the way he has. Because I used to, I started in Boston. Gary was started in Boston as well, and so I did so many awful shows with him. You know, we did, right? yeah, we did a place called Angie's Clams. Like it was this <laughs> little like clam restaurant, and it was just, I mean, they're so awful. And which leads me right into my my next question. <laughs> yeah, well, Gary Gary Goldman seems like the sort of guy who well, I guess every comic would have this, but he he seems like the guy who would would have some really really bad shows just because you're going to get up in front of audiences like maybe at Angie's Clamps <laughs> where they're just not going to be picking up what he's putting down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, you know, I, I assume you have that as well. You're you're clean uh comic. Have you, you've always been clean, correct? Or yeah, okay. So, uh, what is the worst show you've ever had? Oh, the worst <laughs> show I've ever had. I mean, we've uh, we've had several together. We've we had, like a, we had a summer full of, of shows together that were yeah. awful. But, <laughs> but actually, Branson, Branson. There are several of them in Branson. Yes. Um, probably the. Uh, Okay, I'm probably going to have to go all the way back to my early days in 
comedy because as you know, you develop a thick skin after some years in this business. And so the shows that are, that are awful when you're seasoned and you are a pro, um, they're not as awful as when you don't know what you're doing. Right. Um, when you, when you take everything, when you take everything personally. Um, so the earliest, uh, one of the earliest disasters was I was doing an open mic at a holiday inn and this was on the Southeast side of Indianapolis. And it was a, it was a pretty rough room. Um, it was one of those things where you go in, you get on the list and virtually everybody could get on the list. And so there would be 25 comics, you know, all going to go up and do five minutes one after the other. And I was, it was, a full room. So there was probably 110, 120 people in there just, just everywhere in this lounge area. Um, and because it was an open mic and they were mostly amateurs, there was no, it, it wasn't, it didn't have the comedy club uh, structure. Mm. And so, so anything went in, in the comedy clubs where I was doing open mic, you had to be clean. You know, they, they wouldn't, it wasn't a strict, no four letter words, but you could just be off the wall vulgar or right. else they would, um, because they were trying to groom you for MC work. Right. And so that you can't use any of that awful material as an MC. And so that it was a waste of their time, but it wasn't that way in the holiday. Inn. so the holiday Inn, I get, I'm cl close to the bottom. I'm like 18 of 20 or something like that. And each act in front of each act that gets up is just a little more base and a little more vile than the one that in front. And so it became, by the time they got five or six acts in, it was really just a, okay, if you thought that was outrageous and horrible, I'm going to do this. And so it, the comedy just went out the window. It now became, let's just say outrageous things. Um, and so it went like that, 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 that. The guy right in front of me was a built like a football player and flat top football player build, uh, wearing rouge, lipstick, long eyelashes, and a dress. Um, that was his, that was how, that was what went up onto the stage in this room. <laughs> and they just went crazy they were just that was all he had to do he went up and they were already whooping and hollering and out of their minds and then he had a bunch of street jokes that he told that were like one-liners just these filthy one-liners that he'd gotten from a book somewhere and he would tell that joke and then he had a bicycle horn uh, somewhere under his dress and he would go <laughs> so he would hit himself in the chest and it went <laughs> Yeah. And, and he did that for four minutes. Um, and then they introduced me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so bad. I, I just, the, the crowd went from just climbing the walls to whoosh, dead silence. And then, and I did my set to, to silence, except for the, the hissing and some booze and some you suck and some, and it just, and I remember, I, 
I, I remember that was when I realized that the term flop sweat was not just a figure of speech. I literally thought that it was a figure of speech, but I had it just poof, wet palms were sweating. Um, and I almost quit comedy that wow. night. Um, but I, I went back to the open mic at the club and it was a little gentler environment <laughs> and, uh, and soldiered through. So what, uh, wow. That's, Thankfully, it was only four minutes of torture. Well, I, I've had a I've had a similar experience after I was seasoned, though, um, where uh, I was on a cruise ship, and the cruise ship decided that they were going to do a farewell show differently than they normally did it. And so the comics, first of all, the comics on a cruise ship get zero respect, um, which is fine. But they had a a tumbler and a magician who kind of knew each other before they started working on a ship. A lot, a lot of cruise ship entertainers sort of run in the same circle. And so they know each other. I didn't know these two guys, um, but I, it was the three of us on the bill. And they had this, uh, each, each one of us was supposed to do 15 minutes in the show. And so the magician got up and he did a thing. And then the, uh, the tumbler got up and he had a fat suit on that, that made him look like Pavarotti. And so that was his big clothes. He was, la, 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 la. He, was he was pantomiming, singing Pavarotti and like flipping over, you know, so he would just mm -hmm. flip and land on his feet and then he would get up and he'd flip and land on his thing. And the audience thought it was just, it was just brilliant. Um, and then he and the magician had worked out this little act together. And so after he finished with that, the magician came out and they did a, like a little six minute thing that was basically a simulated sex act. So you've got a magician Jeez. who's having sex with Pavarotti, <laughs> you know, in front of they had it worked out. And then it was me and I was closing the show um, and I couldn't I couldn't follow that. It was I, I didn't have uh, I didn't have material to follow that. Because mm -hmm. I am a monologist, I'm a, I tell jokes. I'm, a, I'm, I do monologues. I didn't have that visual, you know. If I'd have gone first, I'd have probably been okay. Yeah. But following it, uh, it was it was completely out of order. But again, I, I had that one didn't have the same impact on me uh, because I had some seasoning under me and I understood what was going on. And right. it's like, yeah, this is not an indictment on my material. This is just nobody, <laughs> no comedian is going to follow that. Right. You, can't, you can't. Um, so. Those are pretty good ones. Those are pretty good ones. So <laughs> we're talking with uh, John Branion. He's a comedian. He's a writer. Uh, you can follow John on Twitter at John underscore Branion. B-R-A-N-Y-A-N. You can uh, check out his website, johnbranion.com. Uh, Instagram, right? Instagram is, uh, where are we? Uh, so, yeah, I'm all lost. At uh, Instagram, Branion. at John Branion. And YouTube is uh, J Branion, uh, the letter J, not J-A-Y. Uh, so check him out. You can also check him out on Dry Bar Comedy. Uh, check out his special there. Just Google him on YouTube, all that sort of stuff. He's he's everywhere. He's everywhere. Um, he's, he's everywhere doing everything. He is ubiquitous. So we, um, you and I have had a, a lot of terrible shows, and so we've <laughs> learned a lot of lessons over the years. Uh, what advice do you have for for comedians? Um, 
to not do or what should they do to to help their careers to help their career uh or just their act yeah i'm i am not a i'm not a real uh, a club comic and i never really was and so i don't have a lot of helpful advice for how to live and move and breathe in the comedy club so i'm not super well connected there um but as far as your act goes i would say that the first thing you have to do is be is you have to think you're funny we've already talked about this but it's really important you have to think that what you're saying is worth saying um and you have to find it funny and if you that's my first indicator the first thing that i care about is okay do i does this make me laugh right um and if i'm laughing at my material i don't see that as an ego thing i don't see that as oh you must really have a pretty high opinion of yourself no that's (laughs) that is the very least that i expect from my material is that i'm going to find it funny um and if you are trying to structure jokes around topics that you think are going to be important to the audience or if you're trying to write about things that uh that you think the audience is going to find relevant, um, then you're on the wrong track because each of us has a sense of humor uh, given to us by our creator. And the purpose of that is to discern, to figure out what's funny, figure out where humor is. And the only, the only indicator that I have is my own sense of humor. I have no idea what Brian is going to think is funny. Um, so I just have to do what I think is funny. And sometimes we're going to agree. Sometimes you're going to say, yeah, that is pretty funny. And sometimes you're going to go, you're out of your mind. That's right. That's not funny. Um, Kesara, sara. But if you are doing what you are, what you believe is funny, um, the passion is much easier to, to develop. You don't have to fake the passion. Uh, and then you just get up and, uh, and speak it my uh, do you know steve roy have you heard that name yes yep uh did you take his did you read any of his I stuff did, uh, the killer stand-up online and he uh, has yeah his yeah. his killer stand-up stuff is worth checking out yeah. um because his his the thing that resonated with me about that is he he would say Think back to a time when you were talking to friends and they were all laughing. Think about what you were doing. What was going on when you were making people laugh? And he says, that's what you do when you do stand up. Right. Um, And it's just when we get the idea that stand up is some magical, mystical process that happens totally separate to everything else about our lives. I'm going to do stand up now. So, oh, I need to I need to morph into a stand up. No, it's just an extension of who you are. It's just a it's just who you are. Yeah. Um amplified a little bit and edited a little bit to keep you from rambling. But but you have to be who you are. Um Yeah. No, that's good advice. Just be who you are. Just turn it up and you know, uh, I would say the best comedy comes from truth, but and then you just you know embellish it as needed for for comedic effect. Yeah, if you think it's funny, that's the thing. If I if if something makes me laugh, I will always write it down. I had a conversation yesterday with a guy, and he said, uh, 
he said, why are there no hymns? We were talking about uh, church, church, totally unrelated from comedy. We were talking about uh, passivity in Christianity. And he said, why is it that he, we're talking about how Jesus said some very harsh things. Christ is, is pictured as this guy who's, who's very jake and or, or, uh, meek and mild and gentle. And he wasn't. He said some of the most some of the most aggressive things that anybody has ever said. And this guy said, yeah, you don't hear hymns in church about uh, the brood of vipers and the whitewashed rooms, <laughs> you know, and you den you iniquity and your heart overflows with evil. You don't hear those. Songs. Right. And I wrote it down. It's like, I said, somebody needs to write a song about the, the brood of vipers. <laughs> and I don't know if anything's going to come from that, but it just struck me as funny. That's yeah. the point struck me as funny and so i made a note of it i like that um what uh i haven't asked this question to anyone yet what is the weirdest place you played like weirdest show either it's for a certain group or at a physical location uh two of them that i that jumped to mind the first one was i was in the back of a hay wagon <laughs> um with no amplification in front of a in front of a bunch of people that were eating like at picnic tables and stuff and i literally jumped up into the back of a hay wagon and had to hey you guys and they couldn't hear me and it was awful <laughs> um, but then i did a show in prison um i've done several shows in prison but this was the only one well, in prison. for prisoners not not while you were in not while i was personally <laughs> in prison, not while i was incarcerated yes um and so I, this was actually back in where the prisoners were. This was back. Most of the shows that I've done in prison, the prison, they, they have like a room uh, where they will bring the inmates in and they sit down in that room and then yep. you do a show and then they go back. This one, we went back to where they were and it was a giant, it looked kind of like a, like a half of a gymnasium. If you picture like half of a gymnasium is about that, about that tall. There was a, uh, like a balcony where you could like a walking place where you could go up and the, and the prisoners were walking around and around. And then back in the back of the room, there was a, a door and there was this heavy like plexiglass wall. And that's where the cots were. And so like it's back here and it's over there. You could see all of these places where they slept. So you're literally back in where they live. And where I was doing my show was this dining area and the tables were molded from concrete, like came up out of the floor. So you couldn't move the chairs or the tables around. They were they were almost like sculptures there right. on the floor. Okay. So I'm doing my show there. And then behind me, kind of off to the side, there's a half of a wall. There's like probably a, like a three and a half foot wall or something like that comes up right up to your waist. And on the other side of that wall was a row of toilets. Just, just open toilets, nothing nothing in between them. They're just sitting out there in the middle of the floor right there behind me. And so as I'm doing my set, guys are peeing and taking a dump, like literally right, right there. Uh, and then on the back wall uh, where the toilets were facing, there were showers. Just, just shower spigots sticking out of the wall. This whole thing is concrete. 
And so there's your shower sticking out of the wall, drains in the floor. This is all open. There's no partitions. There's no doorways. It's all right out in the open. And so there's naked guys showering and there's guys poofing and flushing the toilet. And I'm doing stand up. <laughs> That's a pretty good one. That, I'm glad I asked that because that, that was worth it. That was worth uh, I, it. Friend of mine, we went. I, I went with several other comics, and um, one of the guys went into the uh, solitary confinement area of the prison mm-hmm. to do his comedy. And that was—I didn't go in there, but he said that it was like three levels. So there's like three tiers, and all it was was a was a steel door with a with a little square window in it that was that had tinted glass. You couldn't see anything in the window. So he literally performed for just rows of doors. Wow. That was it. No, no feedback. He couldn't see the audience. Um, And they probably couldn't see him either. That was just amplified so that, you know, whatever got through there, but he, he performed for rows of doors. (laughs) That's. (laughs) Yeah. And I would have preferred that actually. Yeah. sitting on the toilet yeah i think i'd much rather just be in an empty space practicing you know at that point than than that going on um we're gonna run out of time soon uh but uh i'm gonna have you back on we're gonna tell some uh horror stories we're gonna do the branson days podcast because we could do an hour easily on on branson very easily we can do an hour on uh pizza (laughs) yes on the mafia's pizza that's true and uh, the hotel that I stayed in that was at a 45 degree angle that had exposed wires and leaky faucets and uh, the uh-huh. air conditioner had no knobs and you needed to get pliers and yeah. all of that. So much all, fun. All the animal costumes and <laughs> jumping on the trampolines. And, and the uh, uh, just to tell everybody really quickly, we, <laughs> we spent a summer in Branson, Missouri doing the show. Uh, all of comedy and it was we were in a theater that's at 400 people and the biggest crowd we had and i don't even know if you were there that night i'm not sure i wasn't okay was 36 people and that was on free ticket giveaway night and uh it was it was that kind of summer i was so jealous that you got to work the big crowd (laughs) (laughs) but to be fair uh, you you were the one that got to see the uh, the mother spanking the child right in front of you. So um, <laughs> so we'll we will talk about those uh, in a, another episode. I forgot uh, about that. Oh my gosh! And trying to keep a straight face while that's going on. <laughs> um, so I, I got to ask you about the three little pigs because <laughs> I, I feel like that's the, your signature bit. Um, what? Uh, can you explain a little bit of what the, the bit is and what was the process like coming up with that and how that all came to be? Yeah. Um, this three little pigs was basically exactly what we talked about earlier. It was two ideas that came together and struck me as funny. Um, one was I was reading, I decided that I was going to read some classic literature, uh, pride and prejudice and little women and, uh, and I was working my way through Dracula, through the original Bram Stoker's Dracula. And what occurred to me as I was reading it is, holy cow, that these people have a complicated language. You know, English is just a, was a lot more robust and, uh, and deep 
back then. And so there was a scene where a lady came into the room and all of the gentlemen in the room stood up and basically said hello to her. And it took, you know, a page and a half for them to basically say, howdy do ma'am. Right. And it, it occurred to me, it's like, I am not smart enough to be alive during this time period because just saying hello to people requires an enormous vocabulary. So that was the thought. And then the second thought that went with it was, okay, if you've got comedy is based on uh, contrast, it's based on opposites coming together um, and you either justify those opposites being together or you take things that are normally associated and you break them apart and justify that, but it's all based on contrast. And so what's the opposite of complicated language is simple language. Um, and so I thought, well, what's a simple thing? And I thought children's books. I thought a children's book where, you know, each each page has one sentence on it that's six words. Right. And I thought that would be the opposite of what I'm reading here in Bram Stoker. So those were the two ideas. And it just struck me as funny. It's like, what if what if this language appeared in a children's book? And that was the premise. So you take this highly complicated convoluted language and you write it in a children's book and then the questions started to go well what kind of kid would even be able to digest a book like that what what sort of kid would read a book like that and what would the story be like and that got me to uh that got me to fairy tales because in order to tell a story and have the audience from a comedic point of view in order for them to follow along with you they have to know the story it has to be familiar um, so you can't make up a, a brand new story right? because it's not going to, they're not going to get it. Right. So it has to be a story that they already know and understand. And so I looked them up. What are the most popular worldwide fairy tales? And it's Goldilocks. It's the three little pigs. It's Jack and the Beanstalk. Um, and, the, and there was a couple of the Rumpelstiltskin is on there, but, on all of those various lists, the three little pigs was always like up at number one. So mm -hmm. I reasoned, well, the three little pigs is the one that's the most likely going to be understood by people. And so I just took the three little pigs and I wrote it as if it was, as if it was back in at least 1600s Elizabethan English. And so all of the, you know, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. All of that stuff got expanded into this long, uh, convoluted uh, <laughs> language. And I will tell you, I, I, I always try to communicate, especially to other comics, um, that I thought it was funny, but I didn't think it would work. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be dramatic here. I, I thought that it would fail. I thought it's too long it's too, it's too much. It's too, there's too many words. Uh, Tom Naughton was talking to me. There's too right. many words. Um, and it's I like didn't an think eight, it's like an eight and a half minute bit, isn't it? Somewhere yeah. on there. Yeah. Um, and I was, I, and I thought that it wouldn't work. I thought the audience is not going to like it. Um, and so it was in my notebook written out for a long, long time before, because I just never did it because I didn't think it was going to work. Um, and one night I got up and I, I was 
going through a phase where I always, I, I still try to do something new every night. Try to, even if it's, even if it's just one or two lines, I try to do something new every night. So, all right, tonight I'm just going to throw this three little pigs line out. It's the opening line. And, uh, and then they're going to stare at me and, and I'm going to move on and forget that it ever happened. And so I just, I said, basically what I just told you, I said, man, English used to be so, so convoluted. And I, I wouldn't be smart enough to read children's books back then. Can you imagine what the kids' books would sound like? Kids' book in 16th century English would be like, it'd be like in times past or not long ago, there lived pigs in stature little and number three, who being of an age, both entitled and inspired to seek their fortune, did set about to do thusly. And I said that, and they went bananas. They just, <laughs> they just exploded. And I, I was shocked, and I wasn't prepared to do the whole thing because I didn't think it was going to work. <laughs> and so I said to them, "I said, are you kidding me?" And that made them laugh. I said, "Seriously?" I said, "I, I sort of know the rest of the story. Do you want to hear it?" And they were like, "Yeah." And so. <laughs> So I told the story badly. I didn't, I, I remembered enough of it to where I could make it go, but I, I botched it and I, I misspoke things and I right. forgot lines. And, but even, even butchered, it still got this fantastic response. And so I was on the way home and I had a couple of friends with me and I said, I'm jazzed about this because I did it horribly tonight. And it went, fantastic right so if, if i spend a little time working on this you know this could this is gonna this is gonna work and so so that's just the story is that you never you just never know you never know till you try it right um, what's gonna work and what's not gonna work how long did it take you to memorize that um well, like I said, I didn't really do a great job of memorizing it until I found out that there was a reason to memorize it. Right. And once I, once I knew that it that it was worth my time, I wrote it out and I fixed up some of the stuff that wasn't good, um, and I set it into my phone. And then I just I had to drive up to Green Bay, Wisconsin, to do a show, and so I listened to it on my phone, and then listened to it, and listened to it, and listened to it. And it's a five and a half hour, six hour drive to Green Bay. And so I had it pretty well uh, after that. So it, it took it took five hours of pretty intense um, study to get to where I felt like I was competent. But I didn't really get smooth with it until I did it on stage a number of times. Right. Because, you know, every time you do it, it gets a little sharper and it gets a little bit... And it sort of evolved a little bit as I performed it. There were things that occurred to me as I was performing it that I would slip in. Um, and so it's it got better as I did it. Um, because you know how that is. You, mm -hmm. you, you don't think of everything when you're sitting down writing it. You, right. know? you think of things in the moment. And yeah. after repetition and repetition, you go, oh, I can do this here and I Right. Yeah, because I get that question a lot too with the nations of the world. They're like, "How long did that take you to learn?" Right. <laughs> I'm like, "I listened to that song like a thousand times." Right. You know? so, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty crazy. Right, but uh, it's worth it. It's worth yeah. it because what the the fact that it is so long and there is so much investment to to doing a long memorized piece, um, 
that's the that's the payoff. And right. there are, you know, some of my favorite comics, um, like Richard Jenny. You remember Richard Jenny? Oh, I love Richard Jenny. He was one of my idols. Absolutely love him. Yeah, that. he's he's got a lot of of kind of memorized things that yeah. he does. Um Bob the that, Belching Gourmet or Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it and it's inspiring because yeah. because he, obviously you he's put a lot of work into into crafting that. And and you have to be comfortable, I think, with the silence during the long parts and then where the laughter is, the laughter is. You know, you just have to be comfortable getting like for me, I know I have to get through two verses, two choruses until I get that huge laugh. Right. And you know, with three little pigs, it's like you have to you have to get through certain parts of it in order to get to that, you know, the, the second one where it's all S's and you just boom, 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 boom. And then that gets a huge applause break. And you just have to be okay with that and get rid of that mindset of like, I need to laugh. I need to laugh. I need to laugh. Right. That's a great point. Um, if you have a, if you have a comedian's mindset, then there's a tendency to not, uh, to not do things that don't result in, a laugh every 15 seconds like we're yeah. supposed to get you so you're always thinking about your laughs per minute and how long's it been how long's it been but even that has has repercussions uh in in it's not you you know i don't speak in six laughs per minute right you know i speak in in there are much many fewer laughs than that when i'm actually communicating um and so sometimes sometimes there's a there needs to be you know the setup there needs to be a little bit of a lull because that's what ramps it up to uh to the next laugh and there's a you know it's a landscape comedy right. is a, a landscape of of uh of laughter and so yeah you have to be comfortable with the audience not necessarily falling out of their chairs and and that's the other thing that the three little pigs uh that i hear a lot is that people don't people come up and they say that was that was one of the funniest things that i've ever heard in my life and i'm i'm not meaning to discredit them but it's really not one of the funniest things that's ever been written because if you if you time the number of laughs per minute um and you stack it up against some other bit of comedy um depending on how you measure the funniest things right uh it's not, but, but it's, I, yeah. I will say in defense of that though, uh, just like a, a, a smart comedian, it builds. So right. once you get to the third pig, then the laughs start becoming a lot more frequent, a lot faster. Right. So it, it follows the same guiding principle of your set and your act, you know, a, a person set or act where it starts off and it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds to the crescendo and then boom, you bring them home. So, right. Well, one of the things that, that is interesting to me, since we're talking comedy here, what's interesting is that um, that people have told me I didn't understand a word that you said, but I could still follow the story. Right, and and that's the other thing that it has going for it that makes that's really powerful is that people people may not be catching every word, but they're still laughing because they recognize the story. Right. You know, they're familiar with the story. And that is, that's hilarious because even, I don't even understand what he's saying, but I still know exactly what he's talking about. And there's something about that that is just, 
it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. and it's it's such a great uh, piece. And if people haven't seen it, uh, you need to check it out. Uh, drybarcomedy.com. Uh, look for John Branion. Uh, what is the name of the the title? Uh, what is the title of it? Of the meaning of life. The meaning of life. And uh, again, if you want to follow John, you can follow him on Twitter at John underscore Branion, YouTube at J Branion, uh, Instagram at John Branion and JohnBranion.com. That's B-R-A-N-Y-A-N. Um, dude, we could talk forever about comedy, but I want to get a little bit into uh, the, the charity aspect here. Um, okay. John was very uh, gracious as, um, to let me uh, highlight another uh charity that I, I really like another organization um, they're called love thy neighbor uh, they are at www.lovethyneighbormovement.com they are um, san diego based but they they do so much work for the southern california and san diego area uh, they have so many um, outreach programs for uh, feeding uh, san diego uh, supplying clothes um, just you know they they have so many things that they do, especially for, for the kids, um, just, you know, getting bicycles and toy drives and, and just all these wonderful things. And they're, they're an amazing, amazing group of people head up by uh, Ruben Torres, who uh, I absolutely love uh, working with and, and doing shows for. Uh, you can find them at Facebook um, at Love Thy Neighbor Movement. Twitter is at LTN Movement. Uh, same with Instagram, LTN Movement. And you can check out their website at lovethyneighbormovement.com. Again, uh, they, they inspire, empower, and bring value to the community and families uh, all around, uh, all of them. They're dedicated to making a positive difference in the lives of people in the community by launching and engaging programs, events, and initiatives that will provide education, resources, tooling, and opportunities uh, to the underserved members in the community. And they're they're a wonderful organization. And please uh, definitely check them out. Uh, and they're they're not afraid to use King James language either. Exactly, I respect. You, you can uh, you can recite three little pigs to them and. Uh, They'll, they'll enjoy that. But uh, John, thank you. I, I definitely, you got to have come back on because we could talk for another hour and a half about comedy and, and the insights of it and the, the horror stories that we've been through. And I think that would be a lot of fun, but thank you again for, for coming on. You know how to get a hold of me. I do. I do. And uh, you also have a book. Uh, is that out currently your book out? I do. It's a, you get a Kindle version on Amazon. Life is hardy, har hard. And then you also have a podcast and a web series. I do. I have a uh, podcast is the Comedy Sojourn. That's also on the website. Um, and then the web series is the thing that you're part of. Yes, is that sir. what you're talking about? Yes, sir. Talk about Starving <laughs> Comics Quarantine Show. The Starving Comics Quarantine Show. Yep. You should check and, that out, too. Yeah, that's uh, generally every Friday night at uh, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Yep, until we, till we start working again. Exactly. <laughs> Send it to be on Monday nights. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I appreciate you, and uh, thanks again for coming on and, and sharing your knowledge.